0: 1 Timothy 2 verses 1 to 7. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Saviour who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time. And for this purpose, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, and a true and faithful teacher of the Gentiles. Thank you, Corin. Oops, it's good to be with you again today. Uh, Leanne is involved in a service at St. Matthew's Kensington, so uh, she gives her apologies. I guess she's not apologising for helping lead a service at St. Matthew's. She's not able to be with us today. (laughs) Let me pray. Lord, thank you for the opportunity again to gather together around your word, to be led and empowered by your spirit, for the joy of being able to meet together for the capacity to um, have our eyes and hearts, minds opened to the truths of your word and be encouraged by them, to live a life that would honour you, that glorifies you, that leads to rejoicing, both for us and for the angels in heaven. To bless us, Lord, then, as we spend time now, in your name. Amen. So... What do we do when we pray and why do we pray one of the issues that uh, is raised here at the very beginning of chapter 2 based on kind of a conversation that the Apostle has had about this true um, and worthy saying from uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 15 here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and the apostle then moves on from that to explain to God's people as they gather together. Here I think often probably publicly is in view, but maybe publicly and privately the nature of our prayers. Because he says, I urge first of all, that which I think is now I'm thinking well actually I've already said some stuff, but he's making a new point. Um, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercessions and thanksgiving he mentions. Now uh, there are seven nouns apparently in the New Testament uh, for prayer, and four are used here don't think um, Paul was trying to give us a pattern for prayer particularly just saying there are different ways to pray Um, I tend to think of petition and intercession as kind of being the same so I did a bit of burrowing around in this and most commentators said they're not sure either which wasn't particularly helpful so um, I think of petition in terms of specifically asking obviously making requests to God intercession is more kind of so petition I think of as um, can you do this please I'd like to do this. Intercession is more, I want to pray for somebody, a need, a problem, a concern. So there's an emphasis or a um, slight difference in those words and what they mean in terms of the way we pray. I tend to think of intercession as more a conversational kind of, can I discuss something with you a little about a concern someone has laid in my heart? But I want to focus particularly on Thanksgiving, and I appreciate the fact that Ben started the service with a prayer of Thanksgiving, a general Thanksgiving about life and health and safety power to work leisure to rest for all is good good in you know human life i love that kind of that prayer but um thanksgiving the word is eucharisto the greek word is just to give thanks the same word we use for sometimes in the eucharist or communion where we give thanks for Christ's life death and resurrection but when i focus on that because i think it's easy to forget to be thankful in the midst of difficulty or trouble it's easy to forget to be thankful. And thankfulness actually is a theological thing. Thanking God for what we have recognises that everything that we have comes from God. So thanksgiving in itself is not just kind of a polite thing we should do or appreciate our world or what God's given, although all those things are true. It's recognising that God is God. And from him comes every good thing that we have. So it's a, it's a statement about our belief in God not just a polite thing you should do as part of, you know, being nice. It's good to remind ourselves of things that we receive from him both materially and spiritually. So if you have children particularly, I think it's helpful to remind them to be thankful to God, to genuinely engage their hearts and minds and ours in thanks for what we have. And that then, I think, is the foundation for Christian life is we give thanks for what we do have, not for what we don't have. I'll make a cultural reference here. I think that our culture, our society, maybe it's our current circumstances, I'm not so sure, but we can go, I want, I should have, I need. And without those things, I'm not happy. It isn't the Christian way because we believe in a loving Father, our Father in heaven, who loves us, who we call upon for our needs and who can meet our needs. We give thanks because we recognise who God is and because it's the right view of a Christian who believes that God has everything in the end, both under his control and his purposes will be fulfilled. So I'm going to pepper my sermon with some questions throughout. How are you going in thanking God in your prayers? And what are we to pray for? Well, we're here to, we're just here to pray for all people, so there's no boundary there. Now, that may be that what um, the Apostle is reminding those hearing this is, this is for both Jews and Gentiles, the Gentile audience he's writing to, but it's for Everybody. Um, our prayers um, will be for various things that God lay on our hearts. Sometimes I find there are specific people that God lays on my heart to pray for. I kind of think of someone, okay, I'll pray for them now. Other times I have lists that I have. I use, I use the Prayer Mate app. If you haven't got that, have a look at that sometime, the Prayer Mate app. It's quite helpful because it reminds me particularly of missionaries I'm going to pray for regularly through the week. Christy's on that list. Christy, just so you know. Um, as are others as well who I may actually uh, kind of forget about because they're not in my uh, kind of direct line of attention. Um, but praying for all people isn't just, I pray for all people. It's to be, don't, don't be selective in that sense. Uh, no one is outside of God's grace. We're to pray for our, Jesus tells us, pray for our enemies. Unusual thing. I don't think I've got any enemies on my list. But occasionally when they come to mind, I'm struck by that. I should pray for them, not just feel Grumpy. About them, maybe enemy is too strong in that case. But Um, and so again, this is a theological statement. This is our understanding of who God is as to why we pray like this. Because God is a God of all people. And when Paul was writing to um, the readers of one Timothy, it was very clear that people thought of regional gods. God's who are limited in their scope and so you show them certain kind of ways of worshipping them and they will bless your little region, your town or your agricultural area. So God is the creator of everything and so we pray and can pray for all people because God can intervene in their lives as well and his concerns should be our concerns. But I wonder if you regularly have as part of your prayer life this one specifically that he mentions. We are to pray for kings and all those in authority. I presume all those in authority would include judges and leaders of various sorts. It wasn't a democracy back then. They were appointed or had kind of local power. But praying for kings? When you remember that the king or the emperor at the time was the Emperor Nero, this seems somewhat startling. Why pray for a pagan king who has already started to persecute Christians? Surely you do that through gritted teeth. This at least tells us we should, we should pray not just for political leaders whom we agree with, but political leaders who we don't agree with in our context. And it's actually part of the Anglican service, although it might not be reflected here all the time, but, um, and the practice of this church, I think, that we, based on this biblical passage actually and others, that regular prayer for those in authority is what we should do. Now, my view is I reckon it's tough being a politician. Um, this is controversial. I think they should be paid more. You think about being the health minister in any part of Australia at the moment. What a job. Managing the whole coronavirus stuff is not easier. We've all become expert epidemiologists. I've got my opinions about what we should and shouldn't do, from you know, this much knowledge really, when I, I'm honest. But they've got to get it all sorted. They've got to manage this many resources, not blow out a budget too much, but also care for those in need, to care for people at the end of their life, any palliative care, as well as... Preterm babies that are born. There's a limited budget. Whichever decision you make, you're going to get it, aren't you? The media's going to bring out a story of someone who wasn't cared for properly by the health. Now I'm not saying we, we need a good health system, okay, and we're very blessed here as well. But it's a tough job. We should pray for them. Pray for wisdom. Pray they be just, depending on their role. Um, they need to care for the poor and needy, they need to keep us safe need to work out what's right and what's proper, listening to the right voices, not just the loudest. And they need to have good policing and justice and offering good leadership in difficult times. Do you pray for our leaders and for those in authority? But why we pray for those in authority is then outlined. So we've gone from general nature of prayer praying for those in leadership and authority in particular and then explained why in the second half of verse 2 that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness and while we should pray for those things I started with here is uh, really the specifics that Paul's mentioning here why do you pray for them you pray that we might live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness that's why you pray for the emperor Nero or for the prime minister or for our local government now notice the purpose here is not that we have our needs met, which is the classic election pitch. I'll meet your needs, therefore you should pray for me, you should uh, vote for me. We pray not for that actually, because we don't believe God. We believe God will meet our needs, don't we? Through human agency, sure, sometimes, but we rely on God for our needs. We are to pray, and the purpose of this prayer or those prayer for those in authority is that we may live peaceful and quiet lives that are godly. And holy i don't know if you've thought about that is that a new thought to you that's why we pray for our leaders because when i first read this years ago i thought oh interesting because i think of justice certainly those things are true but here we're to pray for our leaders whether they're pagans as emperor nero was atheists or believers in god the decisions that they make assist us to lead peaceful lives because war and conflict helps no one imagine if you're a christian in gaza at the moment if there are any left how do you live if you were in Syria during the war there in Aleppo or other places? How do you live? How do you live your life? How do you share the gospel in the midst of war? You may be able to, but it makes it jolly hard when you're just trying to survive and get food for yourself and for your family. We ought to pray that so we can live quiet lives. The word means tranquility, a settled peacefulness, a bit like the Hebrew word shalom but not full of activity that is disruptive towards others. So the way our leaders are supposed to help order our society is so that we don't interfere in each other's lives unhelpfully. We are to be peaceable and peaceful, quiet as well, tranquil. Sounds good, doesn't it? Um, but most startling, I think, is if, if they are pagans or atheists, is, and is that the decisions that these, these people make, the, ex, the authority they exercise actually is supposed to help us in leading lives that are godly and holy. That deserves some reflection. That as we pray for our leaders, we should pray that they help us personally, and I guess our society, although it's not mentioned here specifically really, but to live lives that are godly and holy. Now inherent in that idea is that God can use leaders who don't believe in him to help fulfil his purposes including in assisting in the proclamation of the good news of Christ and the godliness and wholeness of believers. This is true of a number of Old Testament characters. Pharaoh, for one, God says, I'll use Pharaoh for my glory, in that case. True of other non-Israelite kings like Nebuchadnezzar and Cyrus and a couple of others. Um, What's true of them and is true of Nero is true today. Whether they believe it or not, theirs is a delegated authority from God, that's actually what we believe that's behind this prayer their authority comes from god doesn't mean they always exercise it rightly or according to god's way that's why we should pray that they will indeed do that whether they realize that or not interestingly um and to the annoyance of many secularists the Australian constitution includes these words whereas the people of new south wales victoria south australia queensland and tasmania you know, WA is currently missing from that, but the next clause says they can add in if they like. It's hilarious. And the Constitution should read it sometime for the first part. Then it says, Humbly relying on the blessing of Almighty God, have agreed to unite in one indissolu- indissoluble <laughs> federal commonwealth. Uh, humbly relying on the blessing of Almighty God, because uh, it was written with a, you know, a Christian framework in mind. We depend upon God for his blessing... And everything else that flows on from the Constitution, this is the way it begins, flows from that assumption, including the appointment of leaders and the authority of those in our leadership. So war and conflict, social strife and disruption generally make it harder for us to share the good news. COVID's one example. The disruption it's caused with lockdowns, limitations on movement, makes it harder for us to talk, I think, talk about Jesus. In some ways, crises help help identify humans' frailty and the fragile nature of our lives and should draw people back to God, but not necessarily. And when life is so disrupted and locked down, it's hard to have the relational connectness that helps us share the good news face-to-face. not the only way we can share it. Online is helpful too and that kind of thing, and we need to be creative in that. But it is disruptive, and disruption just makes things harder, I think, in that area. We have to work harder then to make sure we still do that. So we should pray for our leaders that they help us so those things don't happen. So do you pray for our political leaders regularly? So I confess I don't. In church, yes, because I kind of get reminded, but not so much privately. So I need to add that to my prayer mate app, actually, uh, for the establishment of peace and quietness and to enable godliness and holiness. Because verse 3 and 4 go on to say, This is good and pleases God, our Saviour who wants all people to be saved, so again that inference is that they'll help in that process of gospel proclamation, wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Here we see the very nature of God expressed. God is the saviour, described as the saviour. One of God's fundamental attributes, essentially to his character, is that he is a God who saves, as we sang earlier. In fact, we only know God because he desires for us to know him and reveals himself to us. And because he initiates that right relationship, he is the, who sends, he is the God who sends the Saviour, who is the Saviour. And true knowledge, which is mentioned here, to come to a knowledge of the truth, requires a right relationship with him, which is only possible through the intervention of Jesus. And note, it's God our Saviour. He could have said God the Saviour, which is obviously true, but God our Saviour, this personal note that God is... If you're a believer in Christ, God is your saviour. A reason for joy and for thanksgiving and for blessing, um, for being reminded that God has saved you. Christ was concerned about you. Christ is concerned about your relationship with him. Christ wants you to grow in your knowledge of the truth. These are gifts of God to us that we can rejoice in. And it says here that he wants all people to be saved. And come to a knowledge of the truth. This verse has caused a little bit of um, controversy. Does it mean all people will be saved? Does it mean universal salvation? Because surely God's purposes should be fulfilled. God wants all to be saved. And many people have gone down that direction, not so much because they think that God has to be able to do it, but more they're uncomfortable with the idea that anybody will be sent to hell or come under God's judgment. But in this book as well, it talks about, in chapter 4, verse 1, the Spirit expressly says in the time, latter time, some will depart from the faith. There are numerous other passages, of course, in Scripture, including Jesus' warnings and parables that speak about people being under God's eternal judgment. So it can't mean that. It's not contradictory here. Uh, and if universal salvation is true then it means that the logic of Jesus' death on the cross is lost. Why bother dying at all if everyone's going to get saved in the end? Um, why die the death on the cross that we read about in verses 5 to 6? I think the best way to explain it is that God desires all to be saved, but we know he has given us that free will choice uh, to reject his offer of salvation. Um, But God's desire is that every person comes to a knowledge of the truth, to have salvation, to have the Holy Spirit today until the kingdom of God comes in its fullness and we see God face to face. I might say true knowledge, which includes a sense of the heart, true knowledge is saving knowledge, knowledge that leads to repentance and faith in God. This true knowledge mentioned is not just kind of intellectual assent, it's affirmation of our lives that what God has done is right in Christ. And then we go and talk about who Christ is as the saviour. For there is one God, one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. One commentator describes verse 5 as one of the most significant of the New Testament, that there is one God. We kind of get that, I guess, although we won't go into discussion of the Trinity today. But there's one god that's set against the polytheism of the time there were multiple gods and they all had kind of competing and sometimes overlapping demands so it was fine which ones you chose so long as you sort of you know worship them properly got them on side uh, we went to israel years ago we went to um, up near um, the headwaters of the jordan river actually near where some of the rockets are flying across from lebanon recently but as well as from gaza but um, and there are all these little... It's, it's an area where there's all these grottos where these little sort of pagan gods were placed. Um, and I found it fascinating that the, in this nation that I think of being Jewish, there's all these ancient ruins and more than, more than one, of course, spread across Israel of all these different pagan deities that were uh, followed. Um, and then someone's got one of these... I don't know if you've seen this kind of thing. It's like a big, massive wheel that has printed in it stuff and you roll the wheel around... And it, it uh, in the sand it puts out um, uh, uh, words, and someone had de- designed this as part of near this area. And as you roll it around, you re- you, at what rolls out is John three sixteen. I thought, wow, here we've got all these pagan gods spread out, kind of thing, across this cave kind of section, and there is the gospel preaching to it. Uh, someone clearly did it for that reason, like it's allowed to be there in this Jewish place, right? So. Get your head around multiple competing ideas. So some people think that, like, the Bible was written, if I put it this way, in ignorance. It wasn't that when Paul wrote this or when the people became Christian, they knew they were in a multi-faith society. They were in a society like ours that was pagan, uh, sexualized. Uh, It wasn't secular. You always believed in a God of some sort. So it wasn't secular, but it was multi-faith. And it was um, incredibly sexualized within the Roman kind of uh, practices, somewhat like ours today. And saying there was one God was a pushback, was a hand in the face of those who believed in multiple gods. And saying there was one saviour, likewise. It's an outrageous thing to say today. And it was outrageous back then too. So I don't think that we live so differently today. Because i'm aware that within our culture and within our churches there's increasingly a reluctance to say that jesus is the only way to salvation in fact recently in a bishop's charge i'll mention it here in gippsland i read it just last week he specifically repudiates this doctrine which is one of the one of the articles of the anglican faith actually and dare i say as a bishop he signed up for that and dare i say how dare he say that resign this is being taped, so we'll see how that goes. But he shouldn't say that because he's wrong. How could you be any clearer than this verse? Now, I recognize it causes difficulty for us sometimes in our workplaces or our contexts where people say, well, it's rubbish. There are lots of faiths. How can you say there's only one? Well, because of who Jesus is. Because he was the only mediator between God and us. I'll ignore the graphic, by the way. Mark, no, no, um, don't worry about the graphics. Ooh, I've taken too much time for my preaching. I had two slides to show, but we'll move on. Um, let me just uh, finish with one uh, image that's also here. Um, imagine if you were um, a slave in the marketplace back then. It's hard to imagine that because we have hardly think of that kind of thing. But your life is not your own. You have no choices. You're either being sold into slavery Um, by a slave trader who's captured you from somewhere, and you're a slave. Or you've decided to sell yourself into slavery to pay for debts. And the only way you can pay off your debts. So you're there, and someone comes in and buys you from the slave market. You think, okay, I've got a new owner. Um, And as you walk off with them, behind them, they turn and they get the key and they undo your shackles and you think, well, okay, this bloke, this uh, master, your heart lifts a little and you think, maybe this, your master's gonna be better than the last. And as you walk behind them, they say, they turn to you and say, you can go now. Uh, go, you think, where are you asked? To the market, to buy food or to work in the fields? And they say, no, no, you can go wherever you like. You're free. That was very rare in the Roman world. Even today, people do actually try and they pay for slaves to be released in parts of our world. It's unimaginable that it still happens, but it does. Um, but imagine that freedom from thinking your life is going to be one of um, being a slave, which was worse than being a servant, I might say. Being a slave to them being freed was unimaginable. And the people who were reading this, they would have seen the slave markets. They were throughout the Roman Empire. Um, But we read this wonderful verse of Christ who gave himself as a ransom for all people. So Jesus pays the ransom price to free us from slavery. I've mentioned Greek words a couple of times, but the Greek word here is actually the word used for um, ransom that was used to pay for um, a slave to be freed, or well, sorry, a slave to be bought, I should say. So Jesus pays, we know, the ransom price to free us from slavery. And we have, in this case, we do have trouble imagining the relief, the joy, the extraordinary nature of that. People paid for slaves so they could be slaves. People didn't pay for slaves to free them but Jesus does. To enable us to not face eternal punishment. So isn't it great? And we should rejoice that God is our saviour. So scripture declares here and elsewhere that there is only one God, only one mediator, only one way to be saved, and that is through Christ paying the ransom price that we can't pay for ourselves. God wants all people to be saved, and so what do we do? The imperative of the good news of this passage is that if there is one God, one mediator, one saviour, one ransom that we can't pay, that only Christ, the God who became man, could pay, what do we do about it? Firstly, I think we need to rejoice ourselves. Be thankful again. Remind ourselves again of what that meant to be freed, what it means to be free. that are free to pray and pray to a God who loves us. Um, but also, when Paul talks about being a herald and apostle for this great message that he's got at kind of the right time, then that's now our job. It's been part, the baton's been passed on to us. So whatever else we do as a church, certainly we should grow we should enjoy fellowship and love each other and encourage others, as we do very well here, I think. But our job is to uh, help that our Saviour become their saviour that's really the second part of our job description first job growing your faith second job help others to know jesus as their saviour too let me pray lord we thank you we from the bottom of our hearts i guess put it like that for your freeing us for freedom from guilt for the work of your spirit in us because of what you've done work of your spirit to change and transform and grow us into maturity strengthen our hearts and our minds but to see the world as you see it and to love those in it as you love them and lord so we thank you for that great salvation and we don't yet see it fully but we'll see it when your kingdom comes in its fullness when we see you face to face Until that day, help us to be faithful. And Lord, help us. And it's not easy in our multi-faith, secular, sexualized culture, uh, that where the church is seen on the nose in so many ways. It's hard for us to share the good news. Sometimes it's difficult because of our lack of confidence, personal insecurities. But we pray, Lord, that you would help us just to do what we can do to speak about our lives honestly about our faith truthfully about you uh, point people to their need for you and so lord open our eyes to those who don't yet know you as their saviour help us to be able to speak uh, with gentleness and respect about our saviour so that all people can come to know you as saviour and to a knowledge of the truth strengthen us in this we pray in your gracious name amen